This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, a conversation between psychologist Eduardo Duran and CIIS student Natalie Bell about his groundbreaking work with Native American communities and the land and spirit that have shaped his work and worldview. The conversation was recorded in front of a live audience in San Francisco on November 4, 2016. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Hello. Hi, everyone. How are you? Thank you for welcoming us. Thank you, for, thank you Dr. Duran, for coming back. Thank you for being here. I know you have um, something you'd like to share. Um, so in the spirit of sharing, I'll just take a step back. Yeah, and thank you for uh, you know, having me uh, here at your uh, uh, Institute of Higher Sacred Learning. As I, I'm told that that's what you do here. And so, and, uh, but uh, yeah, name's uh, Eduardo Duran. I'm um, Apache Tewan Lakota. And uh, because of the nature of this ceremony, because I consider everything in life to be a ceremony, I'll also give you my uh, spiritual name, which is Teoshpa Iwapea. And uh, recently, um, I've been kind of led by uh, other types of uh, energies and forces to, uh, <clears throat> to stop writing psychobabble. <laughs> and uh, and to write something else, and uh, and it came out. Uh, somebody had asked me to write uh, yet another paper for another book or journal, and when I started writing it, uh, something in my spirit says, "No, you can't do that anymore." And uh, so I called the editor. I had already agreed. I wrote to the editor, and I said, "I can't do that." And <clears throat> and shortly after that. Uh, something else started writing itself. And it's actually not finished, but I'm going <clears> to <throat> take about five minutes, hopefully, to uh, to give you, because a lot of these programs uh, also pride themselves in uh, cultural diversity. and uh, <clears throat> But a lot of times, cultural diversity is from a Western perspective. And, and so I thought, what a good idea to give you a diverse experience from uh, another perspective that's not that <clears throat> and uh, I call this restoring uh, original consciousness a coyote's journey through the black world before there was light or darkness all that was to be did not exist in thought form space or time there was a void where no light or darkness existed nor was there awareness of nothingness and then out of the void, a non-void emerged. And from this, there was the birth of energy. In this energy, there was the interplay of energy becoming matter, matter becoming energy, and emptiness in an arising of awareness. <clears throat> this awareness was primal and elemental as the interplay of light, shadow, energy, and matter became aware. Harmony existed and did not exist 
As harmony became more aware, there emerged the black world. And when the black world became aware of itself, there came to be a plant world. <clears throat> From these events in the void, there came a knowing that we know as consciousness, although this consciousness was pure awareness that was not contingent on senses of the body as we now know. When the plant world organized itself into a human body with senses, then the type of consciousness we now know was born. The original created process continues to move across and within both the black world and the plant world, thus constantly revisiting the original creative emergence. <clears throat> Woven into this created process were and are original instructions as to how to maintain balance and harmony in a perfect harmony between the black world and the plant world. <clears throat> Events of consciousness caused by intent in heart-mind in the plant world can create a discord in the process relationship. And it is at this level that the original instructions are changed and loss of harmony ensues. Movement that spins in the opposite direction in the interplay of awareness, matter, energy, and void is an event that is known to present consciousness, consciousness as discord. A boundary between the two worlds occurs and the original instructions for being able to live in the plant world are forgotten to the senses of the body and from this separation suffering is born. The re remnants of memory and consciousness can be retraced as a human psyche begins to reconnect to the original instructions and heal the split and the rest restoration of harmony. <clears throat> when human awareness or consciousness is split from the harmony between black and plant world, the original instructions come into awareness with distortions. The unaware psyche takes the instructions as the original ones and integrates these into the plant world. The process of integrating faulty instructions give rise to greater misunderstanding, which in turn misinterprets the original instructions in even a greater way. The ongoing cycle of misunderstanding and further separation from the origin is set in motion, and this process is self-moving until there can be an interruption. <clears throat> This interruption may take the form of trauma to the new manner in which the psyche has been functioning. Trauma to the psyche that has been separated in actuality is a healing event that attempts to restore the psyche back to the elemental awareness that transcends consciousness of the black world. The psyche has been evolving in a way that keeps, it, keeps separating it from the original elemental awareness from which it emerged and continued until the elemental discord ensued. The original discord originated energies that can be best imagined as spinning winds that continue to gather energy as the element of time and space entered this level of awareness. These winds were perceived by the plant world senses that humans were in the process of developing and this knowing caused a separation. Because of the separation, the human senses have become incapable of being in the original elemental awareness that is the same time as the original instructions. <clears throat> as these karmic winds begin to spin out of elemental awareness, they move through the black world into the plant world. As plant world consciousness try to recognize the original mind, with a separated mind, another separation occurred that made the opposites more distinct. 
they entered an awareness of openness or female and a directed awareness known as male. Female and male energies immediately attempt fusion back to oneness with plant world consciousness, and the process continues into the present. <clears throat> Another manifestation of karmic winds spinning are the emergence of colors. As a spinning through emptiness occurs, there are energies that are given at certain frequencies. At least that's our understanding in the plant world. Entwined within resulting colors is an awareness of the original void and the original instructions as to how reality is in the void. These original colors are black, red, yellow, white. Within these colors, the purity of awareness is in them as they traverse the black world into the plant world. Attempts at healing the split continue as images from the black world continue to flood awareness in the form of dreams and visions. Again, the plant world consciousness continues to operate from separation, and these plant world senses have evolved into what presently they identify themselves as I or ego. Ego continues to search for the elemental awareness, but as can be clearly seen, it is not possible. Simply put, how can something that is separate from the original awareness and has evolved out of discord that occurred when the impact caused by distraction of harmony has been integrated by the ego be made whole again. It may be possible, but as we know from our history, attempts by ego to heal the split merely enlarges the separation. In order for us to guide ego back into harmony with the original instructions, it becomes imperative that a path be found. The path has been here the whole time through the relationship that the black world continues to have with the elemental awareness. The split can then be reduced as the plant world awareness begins its way back through the black world. The journey into the void via the black world is facilitated through the awareness and understanding of the colors that are visible to plant world consciousness in the human eye. As these colors begin to spin in the plant world, they move in a manner that creates awareness of a transcendent awareness, and these colors can be perceived in what world, plant world consciousness understands as the medicine wheel. In order for humans to be able to contain, contain the colors of the wheel in the plant world, a container is needed as the human ego is too distorted to form a use, useful vessel. Elements from the void combine themselves into a mineral form known as turquoise. This mineral has male and female forms and can be seen as blue and green colors. These two colors of turquoise provide the container for the medicine wheel with the blue above, the green below, also representing sky and earth. Turquoise is also the pristine color of primordial water in its elemental purity. Elemental water is what contains plant world consciousness and the human senses that arise in consciousness do so through water. When human consciousness enacts ceremony in the plant world, the consciousness of the colors intersect the consciousness and unconsciousness of the humans who are appealing to the unknown mystery for assistance. This is assistance known as ceremony or prayer through the integration of plant world consciousness and the vibration of the colors can transport the human awareness through the black world and into the void where union is made with the primordial awareness and original mind instructions. It is this union that is sought by most humans through different forms of activities, most of which remain unknown to the plant world consciousness. <clears throat> 
The plant world has made a regressive consciousness available to certain people who have maintained a connection to the black world through their ceremonial and purification practices. These contraries, regressive, also known as hayokas, in some tribal traditions have the capacity to go backwards in the plant world. The ability to move backwards or regress gives these holy beings a unique ability to move from the plant world into the black world and back into the primordial void where the elemental energy lives. The colors that are associated with the contraries are black and white as the spinning of frequencies of these colors offer a buffer or protection to the contrary as he or she traverses the black world into the void and on the return journey. Through a process of uniting with the elemental energy, the awareness of the contrary becomes that of, of the awareness that is the void. As the Hayoka moves backwards through the black world into the plant world, the awareness maintains itself and does not Im get immediately contaminated by distorted consciousness of the plant world. This awareness cannot be maintained long even for these special beings because the elements that make up the body in which we now, now the awareness resides quickly intervenes to interpret. That interpretation always has some element of contamination and awareness from the void can only in the plant world time begin to disinfect distorted awareness in the plant world. So that's all I got. <laughs> Thank you for that offering. Um, I want to start with um, a question about soul wounding and kind of lay the groundwork for folks that are um, not familiar or very familiar with your work and just ask, what is soul wounding? And how does one, a people, a land, begin to heal from soul wounding? And what does that look like? <clears throat> soul wounding is a term that, uh, that was told to me back, way back when... Uh, I first started doing this work. I had gotten out of the military where I had spent six years and I had been working for the Department of Defense as an engineering psychologist working on weapon systems. We have the military guy. I said, I know people like that. And, uh, and so I started working for a consortium of tribes and uh, the task was to, to create a uh, so-called mental health program. So I started doing the usual linear stuff that I was learning in graduate school where you know you, you do an assessment, and from that assessment you develop an intervention and a prevention, and then of course you implement the intervention and then you evaluate it, and voila, this linear line, everybody's cured at the end of that. And uh, I was very fortunate, the communities that I was working with totally resisted that. And, <laughs> and, and they were not shy about telling me, actually when I first put out the first survey, a wonderful survey created with all the wonderful research methodologies that we all study. And I was quite proud of it. I thought, man, I got some good stuff in here. And, uh, and so the community health workers took it out into the community. And then a couple of weeks later, they brought stacks of them and they were all blank. And I thought, you know, they're messing with my linear system here because if I have no data, I can't cure any of these Indians because that's how you do it, right? You measure stuff and then you implement. And so I asked, how come did you guys take the instruments out there? And they said, yeah, but uh, some of the elders 
sent word back that they said the reason they hired you in the first place is because they thought your grandmother taught you better manners than that. And, and what gives you the right to go around asking us a bunch of stupid questions? That's what they told me. So I was totally deflated uh, in this ego of the plant world that I talked about. It was non-existent at that point. I mean, there was just nothing left. And, uh, and so I, I tried other approaches because, you know, once the uh, quantitative methodology doesn't work, then we get real sneaky in our field and we use anthropological stuff and uh, participant observer, you know, the ethno ethnographic methods, the qualitative stuff. So, so I hung around and I was pretending, you know, to not see anything, but I was taking notes and ass assessing the whole community, not, not just one individual. And so I came up with uh, a list of uh, pathologies that I was seeing and uh, I was quite certain this was it. I had it. And, uh, you know, it just lined them up, uh, kind of, it was still DSM-2, uh, you know, now we're in five, which tells us we really don't know what we're doing, because we'd still be in one if we did. <laughs> and, and so, anyway, uh, just a little side. Um, and so I, I presented them again to the health board and, uh, and the elders, and, and they said, none of those are our problems. And uh, at that point, I thought, you know, I should have put denial as the first problem because I know for a fact these are the problems. And so it was at that point in time that, you know, it was a mountain community uh, that one of some of the elders gave me an assignment. And I would have been able to do this assignment if I had come to CIS, but I didn't. And, and, and the assignment was <laughs> you need to go up into, into the bush and consult the spirits. See, you guys know how to do that. I heard you CIS. have a class in that. It's very CIS, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I took a class in that. Yeah. Oh, you do? Yeah, consulting the bush class. Oh. <laughs> Gender studies. <laughs> and, and so what did I know? I, I went up and my office was actually an RV. It was a United States government RV where I would uh, have an, a little office there. And when nobody was looking, I would go out there and look around. And, you know, I had read stories in like the Bible about Moses hanging out in the desert and fire coming out of it. You know? and, and so I was hoping that would happen to me, but it didn't. And so <laughs> I'm, uh, you know, stuck with this. And... It was also around this time that people were coming to me for therapy, even though I didn't even know what therapy was. And they, they, they would say, well, we already know what our problem is. You don't need to do this needs assessment. So they would tell me all these stories about their life and some pretty difficult stuff. And, and I, I didn't know what to do with it. And so I would try to do some behavioral interventions. And, and they would say, no, we don't want that. And so then I would try another intervention and say, no, we don't want that. And so finally, well, what is it that you want? And so they, they wanted to talk about their dreams. And of course, again, I didn't come to CIS, so I knew nothing about talking <laughs> about dreams. And so uh, I would sit there and just do the usual, uh, well, the first technique that all of you probably learn here is that when you don't know what to tell a patient or a community, uh, you say, well, what do you think it means? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I tried that, and uh, these folks were relentless when I said that. They said, well, if we knew what it meant, we wouldn't be here talking to you, wouldn't we? <laughs> and so now they took that away, and so all I got left was with the uh, 
Hmm. <laughs> and, and that worked magic because it bought me enough time. But then what I saw happening is that they were getting well. And it was around this particular time of uh, the starting of my work that sitting in that RV with people telling me their life stories that I started, I would get the impression that there was someone else in the room and, uh, and it would only happen when there was patients in front of me. And, uh, and it, it, I tried to uh, justify it with psychobabble, you know, it's stress, it's anxiety, it's this and that, but the more I did that, the stronger it would get. And, and I was having a really hard time with it because I couldn't deal with it when the patient was in front of me because, as you know, you know, it's totally inappropriate to hallucinate in front of your patients. I mean, <laughs> even you guys don't do that, right? <laughs> and so I couldn't be like, doing this. And, <laughs> and, and it was just really a splitting that was happening in me internally uh, because it, I, there was no understanding of it. So it just kind of compressed the story to uh, one day one of the spiritual uh, healers of the community uh, came to see me, and I never met him, but I knew who he was by description. And he just came in there, and uh, he basically started using tobacco uh, in, in a sacred way and, and, and talking to me. And as he's talking, uh, I thought, I, I bet you I can run this by him because I can't run it by my clinical supervisor, because if I do... Uh, I wouldn't be here talking to you today, right? And so I'm really struggling with this, and I, and I thought if I tell this Indian doctor, you know, that deals in uh, in that whole other system of healing, even if he reports me, nobody will believe him because he's the Indian guy. And, and so I'm safe, and so I'll tell him, and my hope was that he would give me some psychobabble answer as to what was going on with me. And... And he did the exact opposite after I told him what was going on. He said, well, the reason you're having that experience is because they're there. I'm like, huh? Who's there? And uh, that's when he went on to explain. He says, uh, be, this communities, there was a, a tribal consortium of about 20 different tribes. He says, be, the year, between the year 1870 and 1900, 80% of the native people had been exterminated and complete tribes were completely gone. And he says, the natural law stipulates, and this is a common saying in a lot of indigenous communities all over the world, that everything we do affects seven generations. And so he says, but it's not just seven generations forward, he says also seven generations back. Because in dream time and in spirit time, there is no linearity. And so what, who was showing up because of the natural law, if the trauma happens in a certain realm, that's where the trauma needs to be healed. And so the ancestors of the people that I was working with were showing up into the therapy session. So as their descendant healed themselves, they could also heal in the realm that they were at. And also the unborn ones could heal themselves even before they come here. So that gives that moment a really powerful energy of healing across 14 generations at least. And so that's a pretty big deal. I mean, because you're healing ancestors and you're healing the unborn ones. And, and so then is when people started saying, you're finally getting it. What's 
hurting us, what's hurting us as a community is that our spirit and our soul has been wounded. And everything else you talk about, like the diabetes, the alcoholism, the depression, the suicide, I just sit on top of the soul wound. And if, if we don't deal with that, then we're gonna continue having all of the symptoms. So this was pre-Google, so I actually had to go to a library and look up stuff and I started looking for soul wound and spirit wound in the psychological and medical literature. And I couldn't find anything on soul wound. I couldn't even find anything on soul. And that's when I realized that psychology doesn't have one. <laughs> and that's why it's called that, because it's trying to study it as an object. And if you have one, then you don't have to study it. It's right here. And so... Uh, that was kind of the origin of the, of the idea of soul wound. And also, uh, another, uh, some other tribal elders that I talked to, they call it, and actually there's a paper uh, that's actually APA, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say, but called Injury Where Blood Doesn't Flow. And so that's how they depict the idea of the soul wound that comes across the, the generations. And, uh, and all the work that I do, whether it's with individuals or the communities, if we don't address that, then not a whole lot gets done, and the, and the symptoms will persist until we deal with the underlying soul wounding, which the, the jargon we use talks about that. You know, psychology is a study of soul, psychopathology is soul suffering, and psychotherapy means soul healing. So I say, well, then why don't you do that, if that's what you're calling yourself? How come you're doing all this other stuff that has nothing to do with healing the soul? And, and not you guys, because I know here you do that, but everybody out there, okay? All day. Mm -hmm, is that, is mm -hmm. that... Yeah, that's pretty accurate, we do. Um, <laughs> we attempt to. Um, and when in doubt, hmm. Powerful um, stuff, that yeah. boy. But you have to have that look. You get that look of really knowing something. Without the look, it doesn't yes. work. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, in talking about the field of psychology, there's kind of an attempt to offer healing from a colonizer's point of view. And how do we um, position our work in a way where we're not also re injuring people we attempt to heal? And can those coming from a legacy of wounding offer healing? to those that come from a legacy of trauma? That's a real touchy area because in reality, the whole Western medical model is a colonizing model. Mm -hmm. And so everything I, I, I think that you're studying at, at this school, especially because you're accredited by the certain bodies that accredit you and they insist on certain things, uh, mm -hmm. is probably some kind of a colonizing psychology or some colonizing healing mechanism. And so then the, the colonized is going to react to that. Mm -hmm. uh, I was fortunate that the colonized just told me straight up, we don't want any of that, and, and we want you to go find uh, this other older stuff to give us. And, and it's really important that if you are working with, with colonized people that you don't psycho, you know, use pathologize them because... Most, in, especially indigenous models of healing, uh, don't have anything to do with pathologizing. And once you pathologize and diagnose, you've already uh, started that road 
uh, towards being a perpetrator of being a colonizer yourself. And I know that's kind of a hard thing to say to, to people, but it, it's really important not to do that. And it's really important to find our own uh, intergenerational trauma, whether it's as a colonized or as a colonizer. So if you're a therapist working, you know, with uh, people, you know, that aren't from your worldview, and you're imposing your worldview on them, I mean, the uh, United Nations 1948 charter says that you're guilty of committing ethnocide, which is really close to being genocide. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's really important that you don't do that. I mean, I know that's not in the APA ethics, but uh, take it from me, it's not a good thing, okay? Because it's karmically not good for you to do that, and it's not good for the patient, because then you hurt them more. And luckily, a lot of, uh, uh, especially indigenous people, people of color, they, they just stay away from us. If we start doing that, they just don't, which is smart. Even mm -hmm. though they might still need help and they're still suffering, uh, they'll, they'll rather do something else, either self-medicate or else just die rather than continue to be colonized you know, by the healer. And so um, it, it takes a real honest view on the side of the healer to see where they're at in their colonizing psychology. And a uh, <clears throat> quick case study, I was supervising this woman years ago, and, uh, and she happened to, to be you know, very white, very blonde, big blue eyes, and, uh, and, and she was working in a native community, and uh, supervision after supervision, uh, People didn't want to talk to her, or they would, they wouldn't tell her any. They would talk to her, but just polite talk, and they wouldn't really go into their stuff, you know, that they came there mm -hmm. in the first place. And, uh, and and she was struggling with that. And so one day, I, I just said, you know, using the jargon, you know, the transference jargon, I said, well, you know, when so and so, you know, those specific people, looks into your blue eyes, and your face, who do they see in the transference? And so she's like, whoa, yeah, who do they see? And so she started going back, you know, and she gave herself examples. I mean, who are you when they look into your, and into who they look at? Are they looking into the face of Custer, General Sherman? Those are the collective transferences that are there. So she started doing an honest exploration of her lineage and what they did in their history. And they had a history of colonizing and and, and genociding, and she started uh, actually acknowledging and making peace with that within herself. She didn't tell anybody this. And as she's doing this, the Indians started talking to her about their problems. They actually started opening up. As she's healing her ancestors, then she can start helping them heal their ancestors. But as long as their ancestors are stuck in limbo, because a perpetrator uh, that doesn't heal, then they're stuck also, and the perpetrator needs to heal. Mm -hmm. And so I would say to, like I said to her in that, in that sequence of supervisory meetings, is that you need to go back and heal your great-great-great-grandpa and grandma and, and, and see what they did. And to her credit, she, she looked at some very, very hard things. And towards... Uh, Towards the end of her time there, I mean, she became so well accepted that at one point uh, some of the women asked her 
uh, to lead a sweat lodge ceremony, and I was like, I'm the Indian guy, man. You know, how come they're asking, <laughs> they're asking this, this woman with blonde hair and blue eyes? That's not fair. But again, you know, to, an example of, uh, but it was really hard. I mean, she had, uh, at a certain point of, uh, of her stay there, she, she was decompensating. I mean, she was seeing stuff when she was out in the community that nobody else could see. I'll never forget the time when she came and she said she was walking by somebody's house and there were some very old people sitting on the porch and they threw a ball at her, a little rubber ball, and she actually had the ball. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, this is uh, getting into that woo-woo space. And so is she hallucinating or are some ancestral energies revealing themselves to her? And it, <clears throat> it was really difficult for her to keep it going, but you know, working with it, uh, she was able to heal that. And so um, it's, it's really required. So. Uh, Maybe another course you can have here at CIS is uh, healing uh, the ancestors, my uh, perpetrating ancestors, and that would be a really cool course to do. You could teach it. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> so, I could try. Does that make sense? I mean, it does. Yeah. yeah. Um, my other question is kind of along those lines. Um, how does someone that's um, benefited, I guess, d- maybe not in touch with? Um, experiencing intergenerational trauma because they've benefited from colonization and a legacy of colonization and still do. How, how do they experience? Is it trauma? Is it, what, I guess, what is it? Well, any time that, uh, you know, like I, that, the, that these winds of consciousness are, are distorted, it creates suffering. So the ancestors that made it you know, that stole, because, you know, this whole United States of America, the idea of the United States of America is is land, Indian land, and built on black slave labor. So that's the deal. That's how this actually happened. So it's almost everyone that that's not from those groups is benefiting from the wealth of uh, native land and, and slave labor. So a horrendous amount of suffering to human beings but when human beings are hurt, the earth is hurt also because we're not separate. And so the earth itself is very injured and, and we, we, we need to heal that. And so um, if, again, the honest look at that needs to happen, especially by the healer, because healers, and over the years, whenever interns are coming, I would say, you're not a civilian, so I have to tell you certain things. If you were a civilian or a patient, I wouldn't tell you this yet, but we only have like a year, so I have to tell you hard things. And, and so the healer needs to work at a higher pay grade, and you, you have to hear things that are not fun to hear and, and might not make you feel very wonderful, and I, I had to do it. People told me you know, some things that are quite insulting and ego-deflating, so uh, most healers should also go through that. So that that way, you can heal the the trauma that occurred and the trauma that was impacted. Because when trauma happens, it's an intention in the heart mind that directs energy. And so then that energy, if it's a negative energy, then becomes an act of sorcery. And so in trauma, that's why it's so difficult to work with trauma. Because in a Western medical model 
we only work like with the body and psychology. But as those of you who work with trauma know, that, that that's not enough. And so there's, and when that happens, that means that the spirit of the perpetrator is literally shot into the victim. And so then, you know, Anna Freud calls it an identification with the aggressor, and we can call it internalized oppression. But in the old way, we call it, you know, you're possessed by a very negative spiritual energy that was shot into you by this sorcerer. Mm -hmm. And there's individual sorcerers and there's collective sorcerers. And for instance, in the Native community, like General Custer, General's a big sorcery because he injured a lot of land, a lot of people with his intention. And the communities that I go into, I, I try to get him to go back in history and find the source of the original sorcerer that brought this sickness into their community. And when they start doing that, then they can start liberating themselves. And that's why I call a lot of the work that I do, I call it liberation psychology because it's a matter of liberating. And it would be ideal if the perpetrator came along to heal themselves also. As you know, most perpetrators don't like to do that. They'd rather pretend that it never happened and they come up with all the excuses. But uh, the ideal is that that happens. And probably somewhere in the next seven generations, consciousness will arise enough to where maybe we can do more of that. And there's a little bit of that happening now, but not, not enough. And uh, if, if we were to get to that, then CIS wouldn't have to generate any more therapists uh, because everybody would be cured. And then what are you going to do, right? They had mm -hmm. to go become a banker or something. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier about um, uh, what's happening at Standing Rock and, and ways to kind of um, contribute to... Um, contribute to the efforts that are, are going on there. And you mentioned kind of like plant life and water in, in the offering that you had earlier. And there's something uh, that kind of like a wave growing right now through like social media efforts to really kind of just offer money as a way to contribute. And, um, and we talked earlier and um, yeah, that, that just seems... Um, like fighting steel with steel almost, you know, uh, because money is definitely the source of the pain and the trauma happening there right now. And just lobbying more money efforts um, by way of support, or, or as one main way of support feels, um, I don't know, it feels um, like there could be another opportunity there. Yeah, and a lot of what happens with situations where, you know, like Standing Rock where people see on television and all that, is that mm -hmm. people, you know, either that ancestral guilt or something kicks in. And so in order to kind of wash our hands off it, so well, let's send him 20 bucks and now uh, I mm -hmm. did uh, a good thing. And, and, and still not really understanding that what's happening at Standing Rock has to do with a whole other level of consciousness of where water is, uh, is, is, is actually life and, and it's actually alive and water itself has a consciousness. And all of you are mostly water and you guys are conscious. So, mm -hmm. you know, apparently water knows stuff. And, and so there's a real disconnect. And even the judge that made the judgment when he said that he could see no harm being done well, he, he was talking pretty much in that Western philosophy of disconnect. 
you know, he, he was wanting to see like immediate pathology and not understanding that by hurting the water, you're hurting the, the human beings, you're hurting everything because we are the water and there's no separation. And, uh, and it's really difficult to get somebody from that consciousness to come over here and, and be able to actually understand that. And, uh, you know, a lot of uh, children are, are, are being sacrificed, you know, being bitten by dogs and sprayed. And so historical trauma is occurring right now. It's not mm-hmm. something that happened in history mm-hmm. way back when. It's being perpetrated right now by, you know, all the thugs. And I heard yesterday that a lot of the people and the children took mirrors to the front lines and basically held them in front of the thugs so mm-hmm. they could see themselves. And I thought, wouldn't it be good if we could get the children of the thugs to hold the mirrors to their parent that's there doing that? That could really move consciousness pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And, and so what we need is, is a shift in consciousness and taking responsibility, again, for the historical trauma and the perpetration that however we were involved in that. And the more we take that, even here in California, we don't have to go over there. Uh, it, it it affects the whole thing, mm-hmm. and and that's why I think yesterday there was a lot of a clergy that was there, and they were basically uh, talking about how you know, the Pope's policy back in the 1400s is null and void to where you can't just see native land and take it because that was the policy of the of the Christian Church. It's all you got to do is look at it and and say it's mine, and it, it is mine because the Pope said so. And so, so that shift in consciousness, I thought, is long overdue, but they need to stay there. And mm-hmm. they need to get maced. But then they, they also need to follow their history and see what did they do back in history that made it possible for this, you know, pipeline to even be conceptualized uh, at this point in time. Because I don't know if you guys are familiar, but the Oglala Aquifer... It's one of the largest aquifers in North America. If that gets contaminated, uh, we're all in trouble. I, you don't have to live in North Dakota. You can live here in California, and it's going to be really hard because food prices, it's going to affect everything. And so it's unconscionable to me that uh, any human being could even think it's okay to even take a one in a trillion chance to contaminate it. But because of the consciousness of money, mm-hmm. uh, I said, yeah, no big deal. And then they also already desecrated uh, burial sites, which is, uh, again, not a good thing. And they also desecrated a sweat lodge. They tore down a sweat lodge where Native people were praying, uh, and they just tore it down. And one of the things that one of the guys, the thugs, told some of the people there, says, well, what do you want? We conquered you 200 years ago. Just get over it after desecrating uh, the sweat lodge. Uh, apparently that person forgot, you know, the, the story of General Custer, the week before the Little Bighorn, he had desecrated a Sundance. And uh, elders took him aside and they tr- smoked the pipe with him and tried to teach him because they saw he had done something really terrible that would be very bad for him. And he just wouldn't listen. So that's when the, one of the elders just emptied the pipe on his boot, just tapped the tobacco out. He says, there's nothing we can do for you. And so the very next week, you know, he was killed at the Little Bighorn. Mm. So this karmic stuff is, is pretty real and pretty heavy. So in a way, I feel bad for those guys that took down that sweat lodge because 
the consciousness he took on the suffering of seven generations of their unborn ones. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and three generations from now, they're, they're going to be their great-grandchildren wondering why are they having whatever they're having, and they're going to have to retrace the act of their great-grandfather back to Standing Rock that he actually shot this into the family lineage and made the family sick. So this stuff is, is pretty real that way. And I know I'm talking very non-psychological, but I mean, colonial nostalgia is people kind of talking about the good old days, you know, like <laughs> how good it was for, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. I forgot about that. Yeah, to where everything was just wonderful and, uh, and, and all the people they didn't like, they didn't even get to see. And, and like even in, uh, in the plains, there's still reenactments of uh, some of the so-called Indian Wars, mm. where people actually put on cavalry uniforms and they go out there and pretend to be killing Indians and, and massacring people. And so it's that part of the, of the psyche, that kind of uh, the, the perpetrator psyche that gets stuck. And, you know, because of the intent in the heart-mind of, of doing that harm, then they themselves get possessed by that energy and then they can't do anything else. And like the thugs that are there now, that's colonial nostalgia because they're basically reenacting the actions of General Custer, General Sherman, and and they're very proud of it. I mean, they think that they're actually doing something good for for America or or for somebody. And and it's it's a real dangerous thing when we start wishing that things were like in the good old days, especially if you're, if they don't understand how it was for people that didn't have the good old days, you know. And and mm. most of the people in this country, when when the good old days were happening, were not partaking of any of that. And and so the the thing is is to let's get us back to when, and a lot of that is happening in the zeitgeist right now, kind of in the national elections where mm-hmm. there's a pull for that. But uh, it, it's already the pendulum swinging the other way. It's just not going to happen, and, and and it doesn't matter who wins. I mean, uh, you know, the especially they're saying, well, it's the brown people that that are going to you know decide who the elections are with, and and then people forget that Moctezuma predicted that right before you know he was killed. He he predicted that the brown children were once again at some point populate the land and own the land again. And, and that's a prophecy, and, and it's happening, and it just freaks people out, not realizing that the brown children of Moctezuma are very kind and very giving, and, and they're not going to do anything to anybody. They'll share. I mean, they shared in 1492, right? They opened the door and said, yeah, come in, have as much as you want. Well, you know, that's, that's the different consciousness. And so, um, yeah, colonial nostalgia is... Yeah, not a, yeah, stay brown. I like your shirt. <laughs> Synchronicity. See, we didn't even plan this. <laughs> so. in, in closing, I just wanted to read um, a line from your uh, book, Healing the Soul Wound. Um, May the sacred be restored in beauty. May the sacred be restored in beauty. May the sacred be restored in beauty. Thank you. You've been
been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. The audio engineer for this episode was Ramdas Khalsa. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcasts.